You know what? Eat a dick. I need to go put. Oh, I need to go put juice on this. I had a dream. A dream about Vesta Garen Shipman. Let's get into it. Get into it, y'all. Ossie Gussy, my pussy. Hi there, and welcome to episode 18 of Murder's a Drag with me, Aura Van Dank. I'm walking you through this walk. I'm talking you through this talk. We're gonna go down this path together, and we're gonna learn, and we're gonna come out of it. Beautiful butterflies that have gone through a metamorphosis together. We're off to a great start this week. This episode's probably a little bit late because I've had probably one of the worst weeks of my entire life. I lost my baby girl, my puppy Coco. She passed away last week, and I've been having a pretty rough time, so murder has not really been on the forefront of, of my coping for this. However, I'm not going to leave you guys in the dark again. I won't do that. I'm healthier than I was when I started this podcast mentally. I'm able to deal with this. I'm able to cope with this, and I'm doing okay now, and I'm ready to jump back into this week's episode. Let's go back to my roots. Let's bring it back to the 60s. You know how much I love talking about murder in the 60s, because... I mean, if I could have been around in the 60s, I would have done a bunch of quaaludes and probably also been a serial killer. Is that something I should say? I also wanted to bring it hometown to my state of North Kakalaki. Not my hometown, but where I live right now. In the 60s, Vernon Shipman. This week, t-shirt, water. That's eyebrow removal technique. That's how we're doing it. Not saliva that I'm rubbing on my face. That you'll never know. That's my secret. Browless wonder. Yeah, so Vernon Shipman was born January 7th, 1920 in Henderson County, North Carolina, um, to Harley Shipman and Vesta Garen Shipman. I love the name Vesta. Might change my drag name to Vesta Van Dank. <sighs> Bitch. Okay, wait a minute. New sister, Vesta Van Dank. Vernon was described as a very sharply dressing, very well-spoken, hospitable, nice, gay young man. He came from a pretty wealthy family. He graduated from Hendersonville High School, which is in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Full coverage has a whole new meaning when your skin isn't the same color as the foundation that you're using. Do I buy another $12 bottle of L'Oreal True Match Foundation? I say I wait until my tan goes away. Vernon graduates from high school in 1944 before being drafted into the army for World War II, which is happening at that point in time. But strangely enough, was home within a year uh, with no records of like what kind of discharge it was um just like general not in the army anymore discharge i guess not honorable not dishonorable and he didn't share any information about what happened while he was in the army why he was discharged and there's also no discharge papers available for him which is weird and when people would ask him about it he never told anybody what happened or why he was discharged he just seemed to be weird about it and he didn't want to talk about it it was so like it was kind of clear that something had happened but nobody knew what it was or like why that would have caused him to be discharged and when he returned home from the army he went to blanton business college in asheville north carolina where he graduated with his business degree and went on and actually worked in washington dc as a typist for a while in the 40s so like he was very good he was actually described by one of um his boss's wife's as the best typist in north carolina which must have been a big title back in 1940s when there was only typing wait that's not true there was writing writing was invented before typing moving on vernon was a very social person like i said he loved to host dinner parties and he was known to have anywhere from six to twenty people at his sunday dinner table where he would just do this big meal and have all of his friends get together have drinks kiki whatnot sometime in the late 40s early 50s area vernon met charles glass and they had a lot of interests in common including men boyfriends forever um and they 
opened a small cafe together in Hendersonville, pretty gay if I do say so myself, and decided that that wasn't really their niche and decided to go with a music store instead because Charles came from a family of musicians and Vernon also really liked music. So Vernon was the owner and Charles was the manager because he had more knowledge of like, you know, groundwork music kind of deal. Charles Glass was born September 16th, 1929. He was born to Lawrence Glass and Hazel Steele Glass. He was known as a pretty happy-go-lucky child. No, like, serial killer issues. Big things that you would worry about with a child, you know? Like being a serial killer. That's the one thing that comes to my mind. He attended Asheville High School, um, and then was drafted into the army sometime in the late 40s, around the same time as Vernon was. And then in 1951, he also received kind of a weird discharge from the army. He got a general discharge from Fort Jackson in South Carolina, which isn't an honorable discharge. It isn't a dishonorable discharge, but there's usually a reason for why it was just a general discharge. Um, and there was no reason, and there's no paperwork for him either. Which kind of leads me to believe that they were outed as gay somehow in the army, because if it was both gay men that had these um, strange-looking discharges on their records. Do the math. By the next year, 1952, Vernon and Charles had met and began their relationship with each other. They opened the shop together. They're kind of living the, the lover's high life. Charles was also a big people person. He um, had a really eccentric house. Um, he was kind of obsessed with Asian and Japanese and Chinese culture. He had a bunch of different items from Japan and China, and he called his house Hong Kong Hill. Mm, that's a little much. He also knew how to speak and write some Japanese and Chinese, which I thought was interesting, especially during the time of World War II, there weren't a lot of people who were fans of Japanese culture and Chinese culture. There was more xenophobia and hate. And as I said earlier, Charles was also a musician, and he came from a family of musicians. His family played, like, military marches and um, national anthem type stuff in professional bands, so they were not pleased at all with him when he got into jazz and blues and, and music with a little bit less structure, more room for riffing and freestyling. He was... He was more of an artsy soul than they were. They they craved structure in their art. He even sang um, backup vocals at one point for the amazingly talented jazz singer Esther Phillips, who had a very impressive career. So that's Vernon Shipman and Charles Glass' relationship, a little bit of backstory. So 54 years ago, this past Friday, July 17th, Vernon Shipman, Charles Glass, and Louise Shoemate's bodies are discovered in a very remote part of the woods while some guys are dumping brush for work. Vernon is 43, Charles is 36, and Louise is 61 years old at the time that their bodies are discovered. All three victims had severe and extensive head wounds and were bludgeoned to death. Charles was stabbed 17 times along with being bludgeoned to death, and 61-year-old Louise Shoemate was stabbed 21 times as well as sexually assaulted. All three bodies were very strangely and strategically placed in a weird semicircle. Charles lay with his crutches over him like a cross. He was on crutches at the time because he had problems with his foot and leg. He had broke it from the knee to the shin for a long time, I guess. It was giving him issues for a long time. Vernon lay there with an 18-inch piece of scrap iron over his neck, um, and Louise had a whiskey bottle tilted off of her neck and laid there with her shirt pulled up over her back, 
um, her bra was removed and she had a car jack inserted into her. That was the best way that I could have thought to have said that. It's kind of important information for when it comes to profiling the killer. It's awful. It's awful the way that these three people were murdered. Let's talk a little bit about the dumbest police chief ever. Actually, I'm sure that there's probably dumber, but this one is just impressively stupid. So, Mr. Chief Bill Powers decides um, to not take a rape kit on Louise because he says that she wasn't sexually assaulted because she's older. And that just, it, you know, that's unfathomable. Somebody can, can bludgeon three people to death and lay their bodies out like that, but t to sexually assault an old person, that's just unthinkable. That couldn't happen. Impossible. Even the way that her body was found with the genital mutilation the way that it was, it, it, you know, it didn't happen. In Bill Power's mind, not, not real. Those things don't go on. And this real stand-up fella also decided for some reason that he was gonna share that he knew that Charles and Vernon were missing, but, quote, We had a report of Shipman and Glass missing prior to the bodies being found. Both being homosexuals, we thought that they were probably off partying somewhere. So clearly he takes his job very seriously, and he knows the inner workings of the human mind. He's really got us gazed down to a science. Now I want to discuss Louise, because I know everybody's like, who the fuck is Louise? Where did she come from? Why is she here? How does she know Charles? How does she know Vernon? Why is she in the middle of the woods with two gay guys who were allegedly out partying? I'll tell you why. Nobody fucking knows. So, there's a lot of mystery surrounding Louise herself. Let me tell you, I love Louise Jumi. She... That was thunder. Louise. Maybe Louise didn't like the gays. <laughs> she doesn't like me the way I like her. Louise's family described her as, like, a fiercely private person who was pretty much to the point of paranoid about everybody around her. She was known to, like, pull off at the side of the road if there was a car that she thought was following behind her for too long or that looked kind of suspicious to her, and she'd let them pass her so that she knew that they weren't following her. She didn't tell anybody her address. She got her mail sent to a P.O. box. And one of my favorite little information facts that I saw about Louise is that her family never saw her without sunglasses on. Nighttime, daytime, driving, inside, outside. This woman had sunglasses on at all times because she was just that fierce. I don't think they understand what a diva is. But Louise was definitely a 1966, 61-year-old diva. Let me tell you what. And to make matters even weirder, she um, was seen leaving her apartment in Asheville, North Carolina around like 2, 3 p.m. Later wound up dead in Hendersonville, North Carolina, where she had no friends, no family, no acquaintances. Or possibly she did. I mean, nobody really knew anything about her life, not even her own family, who like she stayed in contact with. She didn't share those kind of details. They didn't even know if she had any friends other than like one lady that she worked with. So police really had no clue, no idea, no inkling as to why Louise might have been with Vernon and Charles in the first place, or in Hendersonville, or how she ended up in that field at all. Around the time that Louise would have been leaving her apartment to get to Hendersonville, Vernon and Charles are seen at a barbecue place that they frequented, having a couple of drinks and having some lunch. Um, and then later that evening, around 6.30, an employee that worked for Vernon and Charles saw them in the car with the older woman, Louise, and with another man who was in the back seat with Louise wearing sunglasses. And none of them seemed to have any sort of expression on their face. She said it was odd to see them in the car like that, especially considering that she didn't recognize Louise or the other person in the back seat. And like I said, this is in the middle of nowhere. This town's very small. Everybody knows everybody in Hendersonville. Now, sort of early on into this investigation, um, the detectives found some few interesting facts about Charles Glass. The SBI finds out that Charles had numerous relationships with multiple 
multiple important men in the state of North Carolina. So I'm assuming politicians, big business owners. So pretty much a political sugar daddy situation for Charles. And he had a lot of them under his belt. I'm not sure how the SBI found out about that. Maybe there were letters, some type of correspondence. Maybe they figured out who did it and questioned them, but they were just too powerful to get in trouble for it. Who knows? That's pretty much my theory as I go on in this case. The only problem that I have with my own theory about the political sugar daddy thing is that that gives people motive to kill Charles, but not Vernon or Louise, especially not Louise, unless she was some mastermind that we didn't know about, which I am not ruling out by any means. Another detail, and probably the strangest detail, about Charles that was discovered was that he actually wrote like a hundred page voodoo booklet. Yes, white man Charles uh, wrote a voodoo booklet where the main character was a voodoo expert Mama Tebe and she would tell you how to do voodoo charms, like how to make a voodoo charm, what is needed, pretty much like a kitschy cultural appropriation book that he wrote and got published through Vernon's really rich, important family out there in North Carolina. So my other theory is that angry deities, voodoo deities, came down to deal with some white ignorance. <laughs> I, like, I don't know why he wrote that book. And also apparently he was known to like sell townspeople voodoo charms and voodoo spells, which is just never supposed to be done by white people. I, I don't understand. I digress. That leads me to second theory that Louise went to go buy a curse from Charles and voodoo deity came in and was like, you know what? This is bullshit. I'm done dealing with this. This is foolishness. All three of you come with me into this field. I'm going to take care of it right now. I'm sending you to voodoo hell. I don't know. She was a 60-year-old woman, always wearing sunglasses, shady as hell. It doesn't surprise me that she could have been buying a voodoo curse from a gay man in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Anybody from North Carolina would probably end up buying a voodoo curse from a gay man in Hendersonville because North Carolina. I also want to point out that she was known to be a very sharp, serious dresser. No skirts for Miss Louise. Strictly pantsuits, like Ellen. Only pantsuits, except isn't that shitty. Who knows? Maybe she was buying voodoo. Does that make you shitty, Louise? A little bit. She was also a buyer for Neiman Marcus at one point. Like, this this story is pretty insane. We've got voodoo, gays in the South, political sugar daddies, shady old women, many possible routes of what could have happened for this triple homicide of people who really don't mix together, besides Charles and Vernon, who were together. It's pretty much a mess. But people are confident that they know what happened. I don't agree with the theory that's been put out there. Uh, only due to the fact that they have been so quick to shove this case off and just be like, oh, it's done, it's solved, because of all the shitty police work that was done in the case. They don't want that to be brought to attention. However, my voodoo theory is probably more likely than this theory that I'm about to share with you. Not saying it's impossible, it's very possible, just doesn't sit right with me. So this theory involves a spree killer that was active in the area at the time. Now, you guys have to remember, this isn't California or anywhere else on the West Coast where you had at least like 11 serial killers active in each state at any given time. This is, first of all, the East Coast, second of all, it's North Carolina, and third of all, it's bumfuck North Carolina. So there's very low probability that there's eh, like multiple serial killers that could have done this if it was a serial killer that did it. And I should say spree killer because Edward Thompson Jr. was a violent serial rapist and spree killer who went on his spree around the same time that these people were murdered. And he was actually the last man to ever be declared a fugitive in North Carolina. Apparently that's not a thing anymore. We don't have fugitives. He was known specifically to sexually assault both male and female victims, which puts him in the running for being able to have committed this crime 
even though the male victims weren't assaulted. And he was also known to leave the keys in the ignition of the car that he'd forced his victims out of at gunpoint. And the keys were left in Louise's car that was found on the side of the road, and they were also found in Vernon's car that Charles and Vernon were traveling in. So that also is one of his signatures that could possibly lead him to be responsible for these crimes. It's just kind of too far-fetched for me to buy into. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe I just want mystery on the mind. He was also known to strangely place objects around some of the bodies that he was responsible for which again coincides with the strange things that were placed on the necks of the victims and around the victims. He was actually arrested around October of 1966, a few months after these murders would have occurred, but then escaped prison on October 21st and was out long enough to commit a three-month-long killing spree where he actually drove into this town that I'm sitting in right now, part of my town. I never knew that we had a serial killer that came anywhere near this area, but on the night of June 23rd, 1968, almost exactly 54 years ago to the date, he was in my county, Aradel County, when he accosted a 23-year-old male and 14-year-old female outside of a convenience store right outside of Mooresville. And they were forced to drive on 21 North, just a few blocks up from my house is where that road is, towards Mooresville. And then as soon as they got outside of Mooresville, he forced them to stop. He sexually assaulted the 14-year-old female and then put the male in the trunk of the car, drove them another 20 miles north, and then took them into the woods where they were tied up with bed sheets. And after he tied them up, the girl was sexually assaulted again. And he left, he stole their car, but but luckily the couple was able to get out of their bindings and escape and get help and then provide the description to the police who were able to figure out where they were and that it was part of Edward's crime spree. I don't know, mental breakdown, whatever you want to call it. So as interesting as I found this guy, this um, Edward dude, I just have trouble believing right off the bat what everybody else believes. It almost feels like it fits too perfectly and it would be such a lazy ending to this case to just chalk it up to that's what happened with no evidence, no proof, because there's so many other options. There's so many other possible things that could have happened to these people, and they're just so quick to settle on one of the only serial killers that's ever been active in that area. And I'm not saying that the timelines don't match up almost perfectly, because it's true, the timelines do coincide very, very well, but I'm just saying that there's been so much laziness with this case already that I it wouldn't shock me at all that somebody was just trying to push it off on the only option that they have. The only option that they have for a suspect. Unless my other theory was correct, and it is one of those important people that Charles had a gay relationship with, and they didn't want that to get out, so they uh, went ahead and... And they just so happened to be with Louise for some reason. Louise is the one part of this story that just confuses my brain so much. I, I can't understand why she would have been with them, or why any of them would have been near that field at all, or where near their cars were found. It just didn't, just doesn't make sense to me. Government conspiracy. The most frustrating thing about this case is that we'll most likely never know what happened, because any suspect that they did have is deceased now, um, which I guess means you can't really go further. There's no DNA to test. Um, and if there was DNA, there's nothing, no physical evidence from the crime scene that they can test that against. There was no rape kit done on Louise because, you know, detective dipshit decided that there didn't need to be. It's really just sad. It's a very unfortunate case. At least for the families, they have a tentative killer that is likely to have done it. And I think that's, that's a good amount of closure. That's not closure, but it's a good amount of something that you would get out of one of these mysteries. So that was a little bit about the life and the mysteries surrounding the murders of Vernon Shipman, Charles Glass, and Louise Shumate. 
Papa Legba killed those people, and I hope you know that. Anyway, you know the drill. I'm gonna finish these lips. Uh, I'm gonna put on, you know, some rhinestones, and you know. But of course, not before letting you guys watch me apply this week's beautiful lip. Time for the magical transformation. That's the look for this week. I'm sorry it took so long. Don't I look pretty? So as you can see, this week it was a little bit different than how the past weeks have been going, but that was just depressing me. Having like the same type of thing over and over and over and over again, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who that depresses, and my tears don't mean a whole lot, but I do want to try to keep variety in the show, and I will not by any means stop focusing on anything that I have been focusing on more recently or less recently, so... Okay, they're in. It's Miss Mystery Cunt. Okay, I'll see you guys next week. Mwah.